tools and tactics are one aspect. So basically you can give a person an arsenal of tools and tactics and techniques. However, if they lack conviction in the process, if they lack belief that they actually can negotiate and can win a negotiation, then they will not succeed. Welcome to the Two Sales Guys podcast with your hosts, Sean Whitley and Matthew Sopiers. What's commonly talked about are the tactics and methodologies for sales professionals. What is less commonly talked about is the stress and anxiety that comes with being a seller. Each day, sales reps are asked to take rejection after rejection, operate in a world of uncertainty and high pressure, and either fail to hit their number or get a higher quota the next year. We'll talk about how to cope with these pressures and what a winning sales mindset really looks like. Sales is often called a performance business, and we'll explore how stress can drive bad selling behaviors. And alternatively, we'll look to experts on how you can manage your mind and wellness first so that you're putting your best foot forward every day at work. We'll talk to professionals in the industry who share the same experiences and what organizations can do to create a healthy, winning sales culture. All right, welcome to the two sales guys. Uh, you've got your co-hosts Sean Whitley and Matt Sopiers here. We've got a very wonderful topic today and an incredible guest um, joining us. Uh, Professor Kasia Jagodzinska brings a wealth of international business experience from the European Union, the U.S., and the Middle East, which she combines with an academic career. She served as a senior advisor to the United Nations on matters concerning multi-party negotiations. Her repertoire of experience also includes working as a professor at several universities in Switzerland, France, Italy, and Poland. She is the founder of Negotiation Booster and an international consultant for the Schraner Negotiation Institute with offices in Zurich, Switzerland, Hong Kong, China, New York, U.S., and Dubai. And uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. to, to be on this podcast with you and to share my expertise and my practical experiences with you in the field of difficult negotiations, especially in relation to sales negotiations. Yes, yes, we love it. And, um, you know, we've, you and I have had some experience together at my previous company, uh, found the content that you trained on extremely engaging and we're, we're very thankful that you decided to accept our invitation to be on the podcast because we really think our audience will find not just the negotiation techniques that you talk about, but also understanding the stress and pressure of those situations, how to leverage those, as well as how to, to cope and manage with those types of situations. Exactly. Well, it's been a pleasure to have that training with you um, back back then in LA, Sean. And definitely what you mentioned, that stress is one of the key parts actually that a good negotiator has to deal with in the process. Um, I usually say that um, proper negotiations start with self-management first. Many people think that a negotiation is two parties coming together, trying to find an agreement, agreeing on a distribution of a limited resource. But fundamentally, before that process actually starts, very often you have to deal with the self-management part. So your emotions, your stress, ego, as well are all these elements that can impact the negotiation process and the outcome itself. That's really interesting. 
Maybe taking a step back, how did you first get into the the you know the whole industry of negotiations, and then ultimately progressing into working with sales professionals around negotiations? Well, it was a random track. Uh, so I started as um, my PhD is actually in international law. So I started working at a law firm for several months right after I defended my PhD. And that gave me insights uh, already into some of the power tactics that tend to be used, perhaps not in sales, but back then in the legal department. Uh, I found that due to the nature of the legal profession, which was not completely aligned with my personal values, I did not feel that, that that's the right fit for, for my professional career and my professional development. I left the law firm and I was offered a, a first job as a manager in Paris. And, and that was a, a job that was combining both the legal aspects of contract negotiations due to my background and also uh, operations management and dealing with intercultural aspects because we had offices in Paris in France, but we were primarily dealing with the whole, Euro the whole of Europe, all the countries, and also the Middle East. We had many offices and many partners, business partners in the Middle East. So it was a little bit random. First, um, I, was, um, I, I taught myself in practice watching the interactions with salespeople, uh, participating in various meetings and so on. So I got the practical insights first, but at the same time, I was already um, lecturing. I was already, I had this academic background. So I was basically working from Monday to Friday as a, a manager for that company. And then on the weekends, I would fly back to Poland, lecture over the weekend to MBA students, higher level students, and then come back on Sunday night. It was a really crazy lifestyle, crazy schedule, but I, um, I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. So I started developing my, um, my academic expertise in the field of negotiations because it was actually what I was doing on a daily basis. So that's how it all started a few, a good few years ago, actually. And I, I have a question and I know we're going to get more into negotiation and tips and best practices that you have. Um, and certainly since you're teaching people how to be better negotiators, um, it's something that can be practiced and learned. But one of the questions that we had was, um, are people naturally good negotiators? Like, do you find that there are characteristics about individuals that make them more capable earlier at negotiation? I think to answer this question, um, first we have to answer the question, who is the best negotiator? And that is actually something that I provocatively ask in many of my conferences. And I like to watch the reactions of people. So uh, I pull out this slide with the question, who is the best negotiator that you've ever encountered in your entire life? And then the audience starts thinking, who can that be? Is it, uh, is it one of the politicians? Is it one of, is it the president? Maybe very often they try looking for very elaborate answers. Um, the next slide is a baby actually. And the question is, why is there a baby on, on the next slide in a session on difficult negotiations? And for those of you of us who have kids, I think Undisputably, we can all agree that the baby is the best negotiator. 
basically, if we think about the core of the negotiation process, what is the objective of the negotiation? It's to get one's own needs met. Ideally, if the other party can get their needs met as well, that's, that's an amazing situation. Uh, a baby is sufficient that uh, a baby screams and at least one person will tend to those needs. So the good news is we were all once the best negotiators. Uh, then as we, uh, as we mature, as we get more refined uh, in society, we tend to lose some of that ability uh, to get our needs met. So I'm a... I'm an optimist, a realist and optimist. And in that sense, I, the good news is that we were all once there. Now, how to get that mindset back, but obviously minus the screaming and a coercive approach to negotiations that quite often uh, babies exercise over the, their caretakers. So um, that's a question that very often is actually um, asked in business schools and high-level executive programs, is a leader made or is a leader born? It's, it's a little bit of the same thing. And business schools uh, and the research that they've conducted agree that there are some personal traits that will uh, constitute a favorable environment for a good negotiator to, to flourish in, to, to enhance some of their skills. However, uh, like I said before, if you can work on that capacity of managing certain elements, uh, then already that makes things a, a lot easier. I believe that good negotiators can also obviously be trained. I'm a trainer, I'm a consultant. So if I said absolutely not, if you're not born a negotiator, then no matter what we do, we can't train you. However, my methodology, Negotiation Booster says, that tools and tactics are one aspect. So basically you can give a person an arsenal of tools and tactics and techniques. However, if they lack conviction in the process, if they lack belief that they act, actually can negotiate and can win a negotiation, then they will not succeed. So I would say there should be a balance between certain personality traits and certain characteristics and also obviously the level of experiences that you have in your business environment, also in your personal life, will enhance that capacity to negotiate well. And then, of course, you can work on it with, uh, with choosing the right negotiation approach and the right training. <laughs> I love the example <laughs> that children... Yes. Very good. I, I love the tactic that children take where they try to like go to the parent that's more likely to say yes to the request to get their support before going to the other parent to try to get um, to try to get the ultimate thing that they're after. <laughs> I think it's uh, it's amazing. I think it's a really good example. Now, children commonly deploy emotion as a tactic <laughs> when trying to get their way. And I know we, we want to talk a little bit about, you know, emotions and in, in the negotiation process. And so one of the things we'd love to hear from you on is, you know, when it comes to emotion, when it comes to stress, when it comes to anxiety, how do those things negatively and positively affect, you know, a person's ability to perform well in a negotiation process? Well, first of all, we can't stop our emotions. It's just not possible. So that's why we talk about emotions management. Uh, so the, the, the important issue here 
is to realize when, at which point are my emotions taking over in the process and what triggers certain emotional reactions and what are the advantages and disadvantages uh, of having certain emotions. Here we're talking about stress, this elevated level of anxiety that very often also uh, causes the cortisol levels to, to, to increase and so on. So uh, we must uh, remember one thing, how the brain is built. I love reading research, but I'm also a practitioner. So uh, for many decades, research used to say in a very optimistic way that human beings are rational beings. Now, but if you look at the brain structure, if you look at how the brain is built, you'll see that the, when the external trigger enters the brain, it first hits the amygdala, which is the little organ that is responsible for the flight or fight mechanism, which basically means that when you get that external trigger, so that stress factor in a sales negotiation, for example, the first reaction that you're going to have is inevitably an emotional reaction. And then, then you start rationalizing. Only then when the amygdala, uh, when the trigger has passed the amygdala, does the trigger uh, reach the rational part of the brain. Now, it's not a very long journey. However, the first instinct is fight or flight, emotion. Now, the trick here is how do I use that knowledge to rationally approach the situation? Uh, we can agree, I think, that it's not possible to be emotional at, and rational at the same time. So all these things that we see, calm down and have a coffee or calm down, have, have, a, have a break and so on, only really work to the effect that they draw your attention, that you're not calm, perhaps. Uh, one can answer, ask themselves the question, has anyone ever calmed down when you ask them to calm down, for example, when you have a dispute or an <laughs> argument with your, with your loved one, uh, do, an, do an experiment, try saying, honey, calm yourself, you know, or calm down and see what happens if, 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 you know, if you want to have an exciting evening at home. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, um, once we realize this, it's uh, an individual process. So the question then is, how do I manage that moment after the external trigger causes stress? Let's say when, when I have to make uh, an opening offer or when I have to ask for something in a sales negotiation or I already anticipate that my negotiation partner will have different interests or different needs in the negotiation that will cause certain tension in between us and a certain elevated level of stress as well in, in my brain. So, uh, well, I hope that answers the question basically about emotions and, and reason. And we can talk a little bit more about that because that's a fascinating aspect. So um, it's not enough to say uh, we're emotional and, and so on, and we should try to be rational. I think the point of this show and this talk also is to talk about, well, how actually can we uh, move on from that emotional and become more rational and more focused in our negotiations to try to find the best agreement. Yeah, I think that's something we really would appreciate uh, getting some technique advice from you because our audience, you know, I think admittedly can recognize after the fact, like you said, when they come out of the emotional state and come down to the rational state, they can recognize uh, that they were in that emotional state. But now it's about maybe there's better ways to notice and have better awareness around it, which allows you to get to that calming state sooner. 
any techniques or advice you can provide would be, I think, really beneficial to our audience. Great. So uh, hopefully I can provide a handful of those. And my first uh, recommendation is usually um, individualized briefing. After uh, every negotiation that is important, ask yourself one question. If I could do it again, what would I change? That's, that takes five minutes of the briefing. We spend a lot of time debriefing in executive trainings, but this is actually something that you can exercise um, yourself. So five minutes after an important negotiation, do, do this at least 10 times and you will see a trend, I guarantee. You'll see a trend, what triggers you and what is your reaction and what are the most uh, common mistakes that you make. Um, we say that... Uh, well, the recommendation is don't make the same mistake twice. I've done this debriefing uh, for myself, and I saw that perhaps I learn in the sense that I don't uh, duplicate the mistake, but it's always the same variation of the same mistake, but in a different costume. So, and I guarantee if you do this 10 times, you'll see a certain trend also in your behavior. And then you can identify and you can, uh, you can change that behavior or you can modify some of your reactions and so on. So that's one technique. So if I could do it again, let's call that technique that. Second uh, is what I call the post-mortem. So very often, like you said, Sean, after the fact, after the sales negotiation, we're able to say, okay, so these were the mistakes. These were the pitfalls. This is where I went uh, astray a little bit. This is what I would like to change. How about anticipating, imagining that the negotiation already happened? So it's like, you know, you um, replay the events of a given situation and then you try, uh, you, tr you try to digest everything that happened in a given interaction, in a given meeting, in a given situation with the other party. I would propose try to do it before it actually happens, which is um, a variation of damage control before the damage is actually done. So that's the second technique. Uh, the third technique is that uh, I would say be positive. That's very, uh, that's very crucial in any human interaction. Just this week, I was uh, giving a presentation on uh, managing conflicts of interest at the United Nations. The difficulty with uh, of working at the United Nations is that we have to deal with multi-party interests. So there's a multitude of stakeholders in that situation. And what surfaced in the course of this uh, conference was one thing, the human factor. So, and this is, this is what surprised me most when I was working at the UN and consulting for the UN, is that the majority of our work was not actually so much task-oriented as it was human and relation and trust-oriented. So that human factor is very critical also, and to have that positive attitude. I once read um, a very interesting interview with Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo, and she was asked, how did you build a career and how did you successfully manage uh, to, to, um, to conduct cert certain business operations and to rise to the top? And she said one thing that stayed in my mind. She said, assume positive intent so that the other party is not necessarily against you. If my attitude is like that, that it's negative, that this is my um, counterpart already, if I label that person as my opponent or my counterpart, I frame and I prime myself for a negative dynamic, which means 
negativity will cause stress levels to increase, which, as we talked about this a moment ago, will cause the emotions and not the reason to step in. So those three techniques I would recommend. I think those are extremely helpful. Um, I personally like the what would I do differently technique because you're right. When I look back at any times that I've had negotiations or any sort of uh, potential, you know, debate where we're going over what are possible, what we can do, where we have to concede. Um, I know later on in the sales cycle, I'll go back and think about it, like what would I've done differently. But by then, you lose out on all the details. You lose out on uh, specific things that I know. I could do differently. And therefore, when I do it 10 times, I'm not going to catch the trend because it's now so far in the distance um, in the rearview mirror, right? So that's a really interesting technique for me. I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about a little bit more was a lot of times sales managers coach their teams to sell to the emotional side of the buyer, right? And focus on how to get them to respond to pain points and solutions that really buy into the emotional intelligence. Um, so I think that's really interesting how you were talking about, about that. Do you think there's techniques around harnessing or leveraging that uh, in these types of negotiations, for example? Definitely. So uh, when we think about sales negotiations and what you mentioned, Sean, that very often sales managers try to work on the emotions um, and inflict certain emotions, um, we have to differentiate between uh, manipulation, basically. So a little bit like we talked about the baby which Matthew mentioned that a baby has this amazing ability to know where is the weak link. So is it mom or is it dad that I should be, uh, that I should be crying to. So, um, I would never recommend uh, using emotions to manipulate the other party, um, because this may lead to, uh, ruining the business relationship, which is very critical. Now, if we want to, um, if we want to have an executive, a working long lasting, let's say business relationship, there's the task and there's also the relationship with the other party that needs to be addressed. So definitely I would not work on that. However, if uh, using emotions is one of the aspects that leads you to the change of behavior, then I would recommend it. And I will explain what I mean exactly by that. Some sales managers and very often also project managers, by the way, people that are goal-oriented, action-oriented, try to address and change behavior. So if you think about the point of a sales negotiation, it's to get the other person to buy something, so, so to perform a particular behavior, a particular act. Now, if we ask ourselves the question, has have words or arguments or any other form of verbal persuasion really ever convinced anyone? Uh, from what I've seen both in and my legal experiences, contract negotiations, then working with the UN, working with students and business professionals, sales professionals. I've seen that ultimately, even the best speakers, even masters of the rhetoric art, um, they build arguments fundamentally to convince themselves. Uh, let's think about what really causes a behavioral change. 
first of all, it's emotions. First, you, you have to make the other person feel something. So you need to create a desire for a particular product and so on. Then that person, once you've created emotions and they get attached to those emotions, they will try to rationalize why this is the per perfect product for me. And then they will, they will act accordingly to that rationalization. And then most likely they will say, well, I rationalize my emotional decision. Basically, that's how they're going to try to explain things to themselves. So in that sense, I would recommend starting with emotions. However, um, that would be my second step. The first would be understanding the other person. What are their needs? What do they want? How do they want to feel? What are their interests? And so on. Any product that we buy ultimately feeds into certain desires. So a certain self-image that we want to have of ourselves, a certain um, conception, I would say, of reality and, and how we want that, uh, that element to fit with, with the person, how we want to see ourselves. So in that sense, if you understand that, and you can cause certain emotions that are aligned with that, that need to reason and then the behavioral change, then by all means, that's a good approach. Today's episode is brought to you by Teachable. Are you an expert at something? Then why don't you share what you know? Create online courses and coaching services and transform your experience and know-how into a thriving knowledge business. Or are you looking to learn from a master of something? then why don't you check out all these amazing online courses from masters of hundreds of different topics? If so, then head on over to the two salesguys.com forward slash teachable. A lot of times we like our guests to, to give real life examples um, of some of the situations they've been in, their experiences that they've had. So maybe you could share a little bit about some of these high pressure um, situations, a little bit about the details of what, what that was like, uh, how you managed that stress and anxiety, um, and ultimately any sort of techniques you have, you mentioned behaviorally or you know, convictionally what you could do and what you did in those, in those particular examples. Okay, sure, with pleasure. So one of my most memorable um, negotiations that I had was actually related to uh, several intercultural misunderstandings on my part. So uh, in particular, the situation was when I was working in the Paris office and I was sent for my first uh, negotiation to the Middle East, uh, to Dubai. And that was by far, I think, uh, one of my biggest lessons in the impact of stress in high-stake negotiations, my own stress, and lack of understanding of intercultural uh, difference. So basically, the negotiation uh, was scheduled for 10.30 a.m. Uh, the day after my arrival to Dubai. Uh, I was in the lobby waiting for uh, waiting for the person from the company to pick me up. So I was there around 10 already, trying to make sure that I'm not late and so on. 10.30, uh, nothing happens. 10.45, uh, no one's there. 
11, no one's there. So I'm thinking to myself, from the European context, I'm being put in a lower power position. So basically the way I interpreted the situation is uh, very often in Europe, the person who makes you wait shows you that they're superior in a way in a negotiation. So this already uh, this already caused certain stress on my part. I was thinking, okay, the fact that I'm a female negotiator sent here in a different culture, uh, this is not starting well. So as you can see, the priming in my mind for that particular negotiation was already beginning quite, to be quite negative. 11.15, I finally called the office and I said, listen, there's no one there. Is the negotiation happening and so on? I, I can't get to the meeting venue because the person didn't pick me up. And they said, yes, easy, easy. Please wait in the lobby. Someone's going to come to get you. Finally, at 11.30, and the person from the company arrived. So one hour after we were actually scheduled to meet, and they drove me to the, to the meeting to the main office building at that point of time so we were driving and there were a lot of errands that had to be taken care of so the car needed some refueling we had to pick up some stuff and i was thinking it's sitting there in the back seat with all my files and with my computer and with ready for for the negotiation to start i was thinking that they are really showing me my place and that i never expected uh, that it would be this difficult uh, finally, we arrive and it's around lunchtime. So they say, well, then the negotiation will happen after lunch. Let's, let's eat something and so on. Um, I didn't understand the context at all. So once the meeting started, I wanted to, uh, with that mindset, time is money, you know, that I'm here in Dubai. I was sent on a business trip. So I have to, uh, I have to conclude the, the negotiation. Basically, I have to use the time as best as I can. So when the meeting started, I immediately uh, concentrated on the task that I had to, um, that I had to achieve. There was absolutely no relationship building on my part. There was absolutely no small talk. There was no introduction in terms of setting the stage for a future collaboration with this business partner and so on. So basically, I jumped into the sales transaction immediately. I look around and no one seems impressed. And I think to myself, well, I'm prepared for this. Uh, I must have forgotten something. So I asked for a break. I had enough reason to think, Okay, when I saw that I'm getting emotional and starting to panic a little bit, I had enough of the rational element in me to ask for a break, which is actually one of the recommended techniques that you're supposed to uh, apply when you're starting to get emotional in a negotiation. I asked for a break, but not to calm myself down. Instead, I tried to see, well, am I missing something in the negotiation point? So I go, go through my notes and I see nothing's missing there. I go back in the meeting room and I go even stronger on the task, on the negotiation, on the sales part of that trans of that interaction. The meeting ends, absolutely no positive reaction on the part of my business partners. I go back to the hotel. It's been a long day. It's been a tough day. I feel that I've been shown my place, that the negotiation didn't go so well. I get a call from headquarters, which is never a good sign, you know, until you're back. So they give you a call. Do you want to know how you did? And I said, sure. Well, that's the big mystery of the day for me. And they said the feedback was you sent us a lady with a shotgun. OK, so a shotgun or they said alternative version was 
with a shopping list. You know, when, when you go to the grocery market and you've got a list of things that you want to buy and you go one by one by one by one. That's how I went because I concentrated. I didn't understand that in that particular context and culture, the relationship sometimes with the people is more important than the sales transaction itself. I also considered that I'm because of the waiting time for the meeting. I also considered in my own head, I made the decision, you're being shown your place. So I was interpreting the situation from my particular paradigm, from my mental understanding, mental map based on uh, the culture within which I operate. And this was absolutely not the case. So very often executive salespeople that go to, uh, for example, the Middle East, um, they think that they're coming back uh, either to the U.S. or to Europe to their headquarters with nothing because they've not really concentrated on the tasks. But sometimes they've built the relationship at least. Something that I didn't understand is as critical also in that situation. So that definitely in relation to the intercultural misunderstanding and the stress related to the fact that I'm a female in a predominantly back then masculine business environment took away my own bargaining power. I've never made th that mistake again to assume that someone uh, is in fact uh, perceiving me as a weaker player. Uh, this this leads me to one. I, I just uh, uh, I just had a conversation with one of our female executives that were training for a particularly difficult sales negotiation, and she said to me, "I can't do this." So you know, I can't win this negotiation. And I asked her, "And who told you that? You know, who, who told you you cannot do it?" So you set in a way your own limits. And very often we take away from what we could actually achieve at the negotiation table because we assume. Uh, this is what I hear all the time from, from our executives that we work with. Uh, they don't, uh, they're stronger players. They don't want to negotiate with us. Ask yourself one question. Are they still at the negotiation table? If the answer is yes, then there is an interest on their part. And then you're operating from that uh, standpoint that I had back then in Dubai, that show, someone is actually trying to show me that I'm a weaker party. And in fact, I believed that. And this is why I failed in that negotiation to properly bridge the task and the relationship and to uh, come across as a professional, interculturally sensitive negotiator, which is critical for, as I mentioned before, a long lasting business uh, relationship. That's a, a great example. Um, and I think you, you partly answered a question that I had when you were sharing the story, because I think a lot about like myself and negotiations that I've had, and then the team members that I've managed. A lot of times as a sales professional, we feel like we're the ones in the weaker position. Um, and I think a lot of the anxiety in a negotiation comes from a fear that the deal's not going to happen. They're afraid. They're afraid to push back. They're afraid to um, that something's going to happen that's going to make the deal go away. And we all know why that is. It's because you know they are afraid of what that means for them in terms of their commission check or 
you know, how they're perceived internally with management. And so a, a lot of a lot of fear involved. And so the question I had for you was, you know, if, if I was your sales rep and you were coaching me, how, how would you coach me on that fear? Like, what would you do? What would you say to me um, to, to better manage that fear that we're in a weaker position and that the deal might not go in the direction that we'd like it to? Um, that's a very interesting question. And that's a question that is, uh, in fact, asked uh, time and time again by the executives with whom I work and whom I mentor and train for their difficult sales negotiations. That takes us back to the discussion on self-management and how to deal with that fear. Um, so apart from what we mentioned earlier, the realization that the emotion is the first, uh, the first thing that stresses, the first thing that you're going to basically feel in when, when the negotiations start, or even before when you, when you prime or prep yourself for a negotiation, I would recommend using what I call the VCR technique. So uh, the VCR technique uh, helps you uh, deal with that, with that fear management in this, in this case. And basically, uh, this is how it works. So you visualize an event in your life that gave you enormous, an enormous kick of confidence. It can be anything. It can be the day uh, you got married or the day you got your big promotion or the day you managed to get that huge account or the day that uh, your, your baby was born. Anything that gave you the feeling that you're you have superpowers basically. And we all have such moments in our life, um, whether we've been, uh, we've managed to achieve something or overcome some difficulties and, and so on. And then you feel, you, you recall the feeling of confidence that that event gave you. So that's the C in the process. So you ask yourself and you try to actually, you try to feel it. Uh, or imitate the feelings of confidence that you had back then. Research shows that recreation or even imagining a certain feeling on the hormonal level has the same impact as the actual behavior. So as the actual thing happening to you, that's enough. Uh, and then you recreate it in your mind, basically. So you inflict those um, emotions, you build on that confidence that you felt in that moment and you recreate the situation. Of course, the context is going to be different. However, if you manage to do that past event in your life that gave you enormous confidence, then who says you can't do it again, basically. And that very often is how I dealt with fear in many situations. So um, ever since I was a child, when, when I was seven years old, my family and I moved to the U.S. And for some reason, the only two words that I knew was cat and dog. By far, that's not enough to get along, okay, with children who can often be quite brutal, I would say, in, in school. And my parents didn't ask me, are you okay with, with going to school, not understanding anything that's going to happen to you and so on, not understanding and not being able to even follow what, what is happening because it's a foreign language. So they, they just put me uh, into school. I don't remember how it took me, how long it took me, but finally I started, uh, finally I started speaking the language. So first I started understanding it. And I will never forget this moment uh, that I started actually speaking English when we were in the cafeteria 
and there was a bunch of young uh, young kids, young girls, and someone invited me over, join our table to eat. Uh, and one of the girls said, why are you talking to her? Uh, she's stupid, you know? And I will never forget the moment when I answered her back. I'm not going to say the first part that I said. For some reason, I already knew how to, how to address that. And I said, I understand everything. And I started speaking English. And that was a breakthrough moment for me um, in that sense that very often when I look back on that, a small girl in a foreign country, not understanding the language and so on, and... Mm, I did rise to the top. I became one of the best students and I had scholarships and so on and so on. Uh, and I managed to overcome that, um, that, that fear also of not being able to operate uh, in, in a completely foreign environment, which, which could at, at moments be hostile. And if you look at my whole career, professional career, it was always sink or swim. So in a way, I always had to find a way to overcome certain fears like any of us have to do. And my trick is always to um, have positive reserves. I call them positive reserves. So anytime anything positive happens in my life, I put them aside in my mind in the positive reserves bank and I allow them to give me uh, force and power and confidence for the difficult moments that for sure will come in the future. And that, that equips me with enormous confidence and allows me to overcome that fear in negotiations, in, in my um, everyday life and in, in the most difficult interactions as well. Mm. Yeah, positive self-talk is so important. I, one of the things that I do when I'm working on deals with customers to, to help myself with positive self-talk, but also to bring the customer back to, to think positively when we're going through high stakes negotiations. One of the things I like to do is, is write up a really crisp, clear business statement of what we're working on and how what we're working on with them aligns with critical business issues and strategic initiatives that they have. And, and I like to document that. And I like to remind myself of it during the process, as well as remind the customer, um, hey, you know, we are doing this because of these reasons, and it will deliver this much value. And I think when I'm saying that to myself throughout the process, it reminds me that I too have value, that I'm also at parity with them, that this isn't just a one-sided negotiation. And then it also is like that center that we can bring the customer back and remind them as well when we're going through those tough points that, hey, you know, this is just a reminder, here's what we're working on here, and here's the initiatives and why we're going through this process. So I think it's, it's a really good point, self-talk stuff. I think that what you just said is, is uh, it, it's, it hits uh, the, um, the nail on the head, basically, that both uh, the customer, uh, the seller and the buyer, they're operating in a system of interdependency. So basically, like we said before, if they're still at the negotiation table or they're taking your calls or they're setting up meetings, then you're on an equal level of power. Now we could ask ourselves the question, what is power? Uh, it's an elusive concept. So uh, I like to think of power in a very simplified way. Either you, if you think you have power, then you have it. If you think you're powerless, then basically you are powerless. So very often it's as simple as that. And Matt, I also like what you mentioned that 
about the strategic aspect, because we're talking a lot now about this human factors, self-empowerment, conviction, and so on. But salespeople need a strategic roadmap also for their difficult negotiations that they can uh, navigate towards when the conversations get tough. So on one hand, there's this element of you know, VCR and all these techniques and identifying your inner strength and your inner power. But think of, for example, how the army works. Works. That's the best example, um, or military forces, how they work. That's the best example of difficult situations. So they go in a way into autopilot mode. In the face of danger, they do not have time to think, okay, what are we going to do? They, they, they have a clear a strategy on how they will deal with difficult situations. Same thing for salespeople. Uh, we always recommend that uh, you have proper, what, what, I, what I will introduce and I'm introducing as a concept in my book, Negotiation Booster, is the negotiation matrix, basically, where you have 15 points, literally in bullet points, what you should do before the negotiation, when the negotiation starts and after the negotiation, it's like a strategic plan of that you know that you, your team are aligned and they know which direction you're going to be taking so that people are not governed and not overwhelmed by their emotions in the process. I think it's it's called commander's intent, I think is like the phrase they use in the military, yes. some, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like, you know, this has been a wonderful conversation and I, I would love to, to just talk a little bit about you and how I, I, the other day when we were doing a prep call, uh, you were in your car <laughs> and took the call with us. And you certainly strike us as someone that works really hard and takes your profession very seriously. How, how do you disconnect and, and shut off? And do you have personal habits or things or passions, hobbies, et cetera, that do allow you to, to turn off effectively um, in your personal life? That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> it's not easy. Uh, it's, when you live this intensively, it's not easy to switch off. However, it's critical to switch off. My mentor uh, is uh, who's been basically my... Uh, I would say my business angel ever since I moved to Paris uh, for for that first manager managerial position that I took back then. He always uh, makes sure that in a way he almost forces me to take time off. So this is critical to disengage from from the business environment and from from some of this stress and tension that you face in everyday uh, in the everyday work environment. Um, what I do basically is I'm super organized. So I like this saying that if you want something done, give it to a busy person. Uh, I sign my name uh, under that uh, every time because that's actually like, like you notice, we took that prep call from the car. I literally had several minutes. I couldn't even get to my office between meetings. So I just parked the car in the middle of uh, a very scenic, uh, very nice place in the, in the vineyards here in Geneva. 
in Switzerland. So at least the setting was quite nice for the call and the call itself was amazing too. Uh, what I try to do is I, I usually have one day off a week. Sometimes I go two weeks without a break. It depends whether I'm coaching on the weekends as well, but usually I try to carve out at least one day. That is usually Saturday. Uh, what I do is I completely try to switch off from the, from the phone. So I don't want any distractions. I don't want any emails. I don't want to see any emails. I don't even want to see messages on my phone. And the second thing is sports. So I noticed that uh, if you don't care for your body at some point, it's, it's not, it's, it's going to stop to serve you. So I think that's very, very, uh, important. Obviously sleep as well. Sleep is the cheapest, least expensive investment that you can make in your own health. So I try to get that, that beauty sleep as well. Um, and obviously uh, well, I try to I try to watch what I eat, basically, which is not easy because sometimes there are days that that I that I eat in my car. Basically, one one of my friends said, you know, you have everything in the car. You should just put curtains there, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know if I should laugh or if I should cry, you know, because it's true. At the end of the day, there's literally everything. There's the breakfast tray. There's the gym equipment, there are books, there are documents. If I'm uh, moderating a negotiation, there are contracts and there's, uh, it's like a lady's handbag. You know, you can find uh, a lot of interesting items in there. Do we, will we find any Swiss chocolate in there? Definitely. My favorite is Ovomaltin. It's, um, yeah, definitely. So next time when I come to the U.S., uh, I'm going to bring... I'm going to stack up on that and, and share some yes. of that with you guys. Love Swiss chocolate. <laughs> it's always a difficult thing for folks in the sales profession to not have that mindset of constantly go, 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 right? Especially when commission and, and managerial expectations or perspective of your performance are tied to it. So you really get into that mindset of just continuing to perform and and I know we've talked about it several times of finding personal in our lives ways that we can intentionally disconnect. And, um, you know, part of even this podcast series, you know, this is something that is Matt is very passionate about talking, talking about. It's a topic that's not generally spoken about in the sales industry. And um, not only are we wanting to do this out of just, you know, pure passion and something that we want to enjoy, but you know, I came down here to Puerto Rico to do it in person to spend some time with my boy Matt and get some time out on the beach after we're done with this as a, a reward to disconnect because with the, with all of that's going on in our sales careers, but also with COVID, like we need to find a way to unplug and have a little bit of refresh for our brains. And, and I, I completely concur with everything you said. And I, I like what you said, Sean, about the reward part. So um, I'm not a big fan of the concept of work-life balance. I think that and at one point when you're building your career track, when you get in that, uh, what you mentioned, Sean, in that constant, you know, uh, race for the commission, for closing the transactions, I think that work-life balance at some point is a myth. You know, something's got to give. It cannot give forever. Therefore, I very much prefer the concept of work-life fit rather than the balance, you know. So basically, uh, 
if you enjoy what you're doing, that's not going to lead to as much distress and as much tension, obviously. Therefore, that's one of the reasons why I left the law firm. I mentioned it was not aligned with my ethical standards and my uh, moral code, but also I didn't enjoy it. That was the only time in my life that I actually forced myself to go to work. And that never happened after that. Plus what you mentioned, Sean, the reward part. So the way that I try to work, obviously COVID has made, made this a lot more difficult, but I try to, for example, if I have a very busy uh, time, a very busy schedule, I like to reward myself with small things. So for example, take a training in a very nice location. I will never forget, Sean, this, this experience in LA. I was terrified of traveling uh, into LA by myself. Actually, back then, uh, it's always a, a very, uh, I would say, stressful experience. Uh, you have a new group. You have uh, people with specific training needs. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a very professional person. I try to work to the highest standards and deliver the best quality of, of training possible. So it's always related to being in a foreign environment. In this case, it was a, it was a foreign country as well. And going back to the U.S. for me, I've not been back since, since we went back to Europe after this experience when we lived for several years when I was a, when, when, I, when I was a small child, basically. So for me, this was a very memorable moment for many reasons. So, and that was my reward. Obviously, I, I, I did not only the training, I did many fun things and, and so on. So I saw that as a re reward. I think if it were not for the rewards, I couldn't keep on going. Uh, very often, um, my reward is also what I can provide for my family. So I'm very, um, my parents are very important to me. And the type of things that I can give them because of, of, of the work also that I do is very critical for me. And the fact also that I perceive my line of work as giving back to the society. So there's nothing more rewarding actually for me than when either my students or executives say, wow, this, this really, this interaction or this training changed something. It unblocked something. It showed me I have potential. I believed in myself. So that's something that really uh, rewards is very rewarding for me. The last thing we, we wanted to ask is like, where can our listeners find you? Um, so my listeners can either visit my website, which is www.negotiationbooster.com and they will see several modules that I offer that um, bridge the task and relationship part that, uh, that we mentioned earlier that we talked to a large extent about. Um, also, uh, my book and the same title, Negotiation Booster, The Ultimate Self-Empowerment Guide to High-Impact Negotiations, will be coming out at the end of this year, 2020, or at the beginning of 2021, depending on how my, uh, how my publisher, Business Expert Press, uh, manages to finalize the program. Or they can contact me also via LinkedIn, or they can simply go on the website and uh, send out a message to me that I will get and I will reply to. Uh, and like I said, there are several modules that uh, focus on priming for a negotiation, uh, focus also on shadowing the negotiation process, and which means that in a way you have someone that overlooks and can identify certain challenges that you are facing in a negotiation process 
and then also the the implementer, which basically is is that module that differentiates deal makers from real makers. I think that's a very interesting concept that we've not talked about yet. Uh, very often, salespeople um, see themselves as deal makers, whereas they sh- they should see themselves as real makers. So the difference is that a deal maker concludes a transaction, so closes a sale. A real maker will actually uh, make sure that the terms of that transaction, the terms of that sale are executable, that they will actually be implemented in real life. So that's that I think is, is a critical factor also in sales. A negotiation booster sounds like a completely new methodology that I think would be very interesting uh, to check out. You mentioned some modules uh, that are available there. Maybe you could share a little bit more about what those modules are like. Sure. So uh, basically the program consists, the methodology consists of four modules that you can choose uh, and that sales representatives and salespeople can choose among. The negotiation primer is where we focus on how you can achieve your most desired negotiation outcome by priming your mind for success before the next important negotiation. This module includes strategic preparation, advice on how to channel your emotions into achieving your goal and boosting your inner bargaining power. So this is something that we mentioned before. So how I primed myself in a negative way before understanding those intercultural uh, factors that may impact the process in the Middle East. Then the second module is the negotiation shadowing where we discover how to avoid what uh, I refer to tunnel vision in negotiations. So tunnel vision is when it's like driving into a tunnel when you enter and the light narrows and you can only see one possible uh, outcome of a negotiation process. Whereas in reality, there are many factors that can impact uh, how and to which extent you will uh, manage to achieve your negotiation objective. So here, very often, this shadowing works uh, in the form of a mock negotiation setting where you benefit from the presence of a negotiation expert that will prepare you for your next upcoming critical, difficult negotiation. So basically, while you negotiate, the expert instructs you on how you should stay focused on the execution of the negotiation strategy that was established in the primer, regardless of the tools, tactics, power plays that can be used against you. The additional benefit of the shadowing module is that it includes a debriefing uh, conducted by the expert, by the shadow negotiator, that highlights some of these uh, areas for improvement that relates to this self-debriefing exercise technique that I mentioned before earlier in the podcast. Then we have the sealer where we focus on how to avoid mistakes and never make the same ones again. So based on real life cases, we assess past negotiation outcomes, review the types of challenges that were faced in sales negotiation, be it strategic, be be it tactical or emotional, and identify areas for future improvement. Then we set up a tailor-made strategy for uh, a roadmap for future negotiations with the ultimate aim of building long-lasting relationships with your buyers. 
And then the implementer is a module that takes place six to eight weeks after the last negotiation module. And the key focus here is to assess the implementation of the previous modules and still address any issues that perhaps may have, uh, may have appeared during the Im implementation after the last module, which is very helpful because you get the time to practice to see which tools and which uh, strategies and tactics you've been applying and then see how, if necessary, to monitor the execution and to uh, realign with the, uh, with the sales objectives. So that's basically it. We really, really appreciate you coming on here. The, the conversation was very engaging. I think we have a few good takeaways and techniques that the, the audience can, can put into practice in their daily lives and obviously find out more information on your website with your book. It's always a pleasure uh, speaking with you. So we, we really thank you again for, for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much, Sean. Always a pleasure. And Matt, was a pleasure uh, working with you too. Yeah, thank you so much. The best of luck in your negotiations. Thank you so much for listening to the two sales guys. If you liked what you heard, go ahead and remember to follow and subscribe and turn on the notifications so you can be alerted when new episodes are released. Looking forward in two weeks on January 13th, we'll be launching our next episode with Richard Husseini. Richard has 16 years of performance coach experience with some of the best organizations and athletes in the world from Great Britain and China, including supporting teams in preparation for two Summer Olympic Games, as well as most recently in the 2018 Winter Olympics. In addition to his performance coaching, after giving end of care life to his mother, it really addressed his own physical, emotional, and spiritual landscapes. And so we delve into what it takes to be an Olympic level performance and have that type of focus on your mental health and wellness. Thanks again for tuning in to the two sales guys and have a happy new year.